Hello, my friend, and welcome back to Squidge the Podcast. All right, today I am sitting down with my friend Carrie Brady, and we are going to be looking at what it means to be a recovering codependent. So before we get into that, I want to read you Carrie's bio because I think it gives a nice overview to the high achieving person that, uh, that she is, because it will give you a lot of context for when we are talking about her need to people please and be the perfect student, the perfect parent, the perfect everything. Um, yeah, here is her bio. Carrie focuses on educational planning, educational research, school safety, and security and change management. She helps clients shape the learning experience by facilitating in-depth conversations and explorations on vision, curriculum, experience, and space. Carrie serves on the board of directors for the Texas School Safety Center as the architect member and plays an important leadership role in the Lex Collaborative, a partnership between Huckabee, ESC Region 12, and Baylor University that focuses on educational research and the built environment's impact on student success. Most recently, Carrie led the charge to rewrite the school facility standards for the state of Texas and co-authored an international book about the role of career and technical education in 21st century learning. Woo! She has done so much in her life and has always been highly achievement oriented. So I can't wait for you to listen to this podcast interview because as a fellow high achiever, there is usually a lot under the surface of what drives that energy and that fire to yeah achieve at any cost. So while it sounds impressive, and it is impressive that Carrie has done so much, I can't wait for you to explore the human behind all these achievements and see what she's learned in that process. So if you want to learn more about Carrie or find out more about the work that she does, you can check her out on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Carrie hyphen Brady hyphen A 10B534. And this will be linked in the show notes. So you can just click the link from there. So let's get into the conversation. All right. Before we get into the episode, I do want to just let you know about something that I've just released, and that is the Perfectly Natural Revolution Workshop Experience, a six-day retreat in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico in 2024. It's essentially a six-day retreat for you to join me in the beautiful tropics to learn more about creating an inclusive photography business from the inside out. Essentially, we are going to start with you to understand how body image plays an impact on how you run your business and the impact that it has on our clients, of course. But within that, there's going to be so much more such as accountability and you will leave with work being done. This is not the type of retreat where you learn all the things and then still have to do the work when you get home. We are going to do it all there with you. We're going to help you craft a plan for the revolution that you want to start. And we are going to do it in the most inclusive and amazing way possible. So without further ado, head to my website at terryhoffer.com and check it out under retreats. Now on to the episode. Hello 
everyone, and welcome back to Squidge the Podcast. I am here with Carrie, and we're talking about the squidginess of becoming, uh, what, what did you say? Recovering from codependency. Uh, and I'm very excited to know more about that because, uh, yeah, I just, I don't have my own experience, or at least I don't know that I have my own experience with codependency. So I'm excited to uncover in our conversation today, kind of how that can show up, the impact that it has on family, uh, and the trickle-down effect that it can have um, on our relationships with our kids, and the impact that that has as well. But before we get into that, my favorite question to ask my guest, Carrie, is, who, what do I need to know about you as a child to know about who you are today? Wow, nothing like asking the punchline of the joke before <laughs> we even get started. Um, <laughs> uh, what do you need to know? Well, if you were to ask child Carrie, Carrie would tell you that her childhood was great. It was fun. It was normal. It was fine. Um, adult Carrie, like current day Carrie, would tell you that her childhood was the conditioning of her becoming a very incredible circus performer and that would ultimately lead to a place in adulthood where her own identity would come flooding out of her. <laughs> So when you were, when you were in that, like when you were younger though, as a child, um, you know, just like spending time, what were the things that you did spend your time doing, or if even what you can remember, um, like things where you would get lost in, you know, lose track of time doing for yourself. I always think it's fun to kind of go back to that version of ourselves before, the rest of the reality of our situation kind of presented itself uh, because I think it tells a lot about our coping mechanisms, our, um, you know, the things that do make us feel safe in an otherwise maybe less than safe world and things like that. So for you, yeah, what was, what was something that you love to do that you could lose all track of time doing? There were a few things. Um, I grew up swimming, so we had a pool in the backyard. I grew up in Southern California, and so we had a pool in the backyard, and so that was something that I did on the weekends, and the summers I did from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., and maybe I showered a couple days before school started, and we'd put some ammonia or tomato juice in my hair to get the green out, and then we would get ready for school um, and get more into a routine, so I very much grew up in the water, um, so that's definitely a childhood pastime. I grew up with a couple um, neighbor friends, some guys in the neighborhood, and so we would shoot hoops. Some of them had the fixed basketball hoop on the front of their house, and so we would shoot hoops. I used um, to think when kids had that, that they were so rich. Like, do. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, oh, wow, you're like from a wealthy family. If you have a basketball net on your, like over your garage, that's wild. Yeah. <laughs> or you're an athletic achiever. Like yes. you're an athlete. I was not an athlete. I grew up a dancer. And so I always just labeled the children in that house as athletes, because I presumed that they knew how to get the ball into the hoop, which was a challenge for me. <laughs> I, was, I was a good person to play horse with because it wasn't very good, um, but I really enjoyed hanging out with them. So we would kind of run the neighborhood and, you know, hop houses and do all sorts of things until the very cliched streetlights came on 
and then we would all kind of head home. Oh, um, good old days. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so that those are two things. And then as I got older, like into middle school and high school, I grew up cheering. So gymnastics turned into cheer. Cheer evolved into twirling batons, fire batons, that kind of thing for a few years. And then in high school, I was in color guards. So I did flags, rifles, and sabers. And that's a true passion. Like if I went back and didn't have what we'll talk about is the big squidge of all the discovery of things about my childhood um, with hindsight, um, I would have probably been a color guard instructor. It's a, a calling. I have a knack for it. I still drive to client meetings and choreograph in my head to songs on the radio. Um, it's just like you should still love. find a way to do this as part of it. <laughs> I really do. I think it's important for us to like, we all have that one thing that was like, no, that was mine. Like, I know that was me, like me as I know myself to be. That was the authentic me doing that thing. Um, so I think you should look into making that part of your adult life. Uh, I think I think it's a gift. Like, like a lot of the things that we have, they are gifts that are not for us. They are for the world. So, um, so let us then just dive right into the squidge i hate small talk so we're just gonna get right into the good stuff uh since we are talking about childhood anyways so talk to me a little bit about um because you mentioned like now as an adult like the like your identity kind of you came flooding out and things like that so let's talk about when you as much as you're comfortable when you were younger maybe the identity you created for yourself why you created that and then how was that in contrast, like now that you've done some work on it to who you actually were um, and so on? So feel free to take all of that wherever you want. <laughs> so I was a, I would consider myself an easy kid. Um, and that's really how I got labeled um, by my parents, by my sisters, um, by teachers, by everybody. I was compliant, I was happy, I was sort of all the easy things. Um, but what I can look back on now is I was a very observant child and my sisters, so I have an older sister and she's seven years older than I am. And I have a younger sister who's six years younger than me. So they're pretty far apart in age. And so they, my older sister was pretty far ahead of me in growing up with my parents than I was. And then I was quite a, you know, quite far ahead than my little sister. And by the time my little sister was kind of coming into her own as a sort of elementary school child, my older sister had moved out. So there's this sort of dynamic of the age gaps in there that I think is important, or I learned it was important later. I always felt like it was strange growing up because I never really connected with my sisters. As kids, we were enemies in ways. We were um, disconnected in a lot of ways because we were in very different phases of life all the time. Um, but I was, I was the easy kid. That's really sort of how I got labeled. Um, Hello, middle and, child syndrome. I am a middle <laughs> child and was also labeled the easy one. My mom 
even tells the story of like birthing me she was like four pushes and you were out you were so easy and all of a sudden it's like ding here's a box for you to fit into so yeah so tell me a little bit more about how that how that impacted like you growing up both good and bad because I believe obviously these are things that save us in some way up to a certain point yeah. I mean, as a kid, I, my mom would suggest something and I would say yes. So I was very amenable. Um, I got to run and do and go and have lots of adventures. And she was always a volunteer parent for the things that I did. And what I knew growing up is that that was in stark contrast to my mom's relationship with my older sister. And what I observed in my child brain what I concluded was I was not going to follow my older sister's path. I didn't understand my older sister's path until a handful of years ago. And now her path makes perfect sense. And I wish I would have seen her for who she was at the time because I didn't see her for that. I saw her the way my mom saw her or portrayed her to me. And so I saw what was difficult behavior. I didn't see easy. I saw difficult. I saw challenging. I saw defiant And so these are not necessarily even words that I chose. They were words that were sort of laid out for me as people talked about her or um, aired grievances or any of those kinds of things. And there were not a lot of boundaries in the house. Um, So I was very much uh, a sounding board or a confidant or someone for my mom to work through her thoughts and feelings on raising my others, my sisters, um, what I learned later college and beyond is when I was around, I was the person that she used to sort of talk about the other two. When my older sister was around, she was the one that she used to talk about the two of us. And when my little sister was around, she would, uh, you know, align with her to sort of create these common enemies, which were the other two sisters. So Mm. triangulation, big, powerful sort of strain of triangulation in the house, uh, which- divided us as sisters until we were much older well and it's interesting because my mom uh, told me and her mom told her and so on that when you're in a room of people and they start talking about other people you need to leave that room because as soon as you leave the room they're talking about you kind of thing right uh and yeah so that's exactly what your mom was doing right but it's I feel like it's such a hard dynamic when it's your parent um you don't know any different you're looking for love because eat love equals survival when you're a child and things like that um so now that you're older, what is your relationship like with your sisters? Like, since you've been doing work, um, you know, to uncover and start to realize like the, what I call the truth versus your truth or her, your mom's truth of what happened. Um, yeah. What is that like for you guys now? We're really close. Uh, very, very close. My little sister is my ride or die. Um, she's absolutely, you know, the person that I lean on probably the most outside of my spouse to just work through things. Or if I'm having a moment, if I need to sort of throw a tantrum, I can call her and she'll just be silent on the other end while I just blow off all that steam. And then she'll say, okay, do you want me to say anything? Do you want to just hang up? Like, what do you need from me at this point? Because she knows that what I needed in that first moment is just silence for me to just throw all that energy somewhere. And for, for her to have duck feathers 
and just let it like slide right off the back because it's not pointed at her. I just need a place to, sort of, to express it. Um, my older sister and I are very close. Um, we've gotten closer over the last few years. Um, she just within the last year has started um, admitting, openly talking about saying out loud, even with me on the other end of the phone, some of the behaviors that she is starting to see as patterns in herself. Mm -hmm. And I was able to say, yeah, I do that. Or I did that. Um, I have a, a track record of that. And she was shocked because she sees herself as so different than me. I have it all figured out. I am the independent one. I'm the, what's called the golden child. Um, that was the story that she, she was receiving about you when you were receiving the story about her. I find like, it's so like, even though parents, well, most parents are well-meaning about these types of things, or even teachers, like that's the thing is, it's not just parents, right? It's like, also, we carry those identities with us into school. Um, and so then there's a point where it's like, well, I'll just become the thing that they're telling me that I am, which I'm assuming is what happened with your, in your sister's case. Um, but similar to you, I was told from, oh, don't be like your brother who's older than me. And oh, I'm so glad you're not like your sister who's younger than me. Um, and those two are very similar in their behaviors. And so similarly, golden child, da, 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 da. and yeah. And for the longest time, I was so judgmental of them because I was like, that is the complete opposite of me. So that is wrong or bad because I am good. This is what a good girl does. And that now as an adult, I'm like, oh, no, like that's a, like I realized like the things that would make me frustrated about them and even still sometimes frustrated are the things that I wish I could do. Like, I wish I could be angry viscerally like my sister. Right. Um, And so it's so easy to be like it was jealousy that turned into judgment um when I would see those behaviors on them and then it was like well don't be that but also I kind of need to be that but I can't be that so is that kind of I saw you pointing to yourself for those that are listening not watching um yeah very very uh what do you call it like expressive hand gestures about that so yeah so talk to me a little bit more about that for you yeah, I what I what I find fascinating about my situation specifically is two things. I don't know that I really had an awareness of the dynamic until I had what I call my epic fall from grace, mm -hmm. which was in my mid 30s. I filed for divorce from my first husband and that put an irreversible black mark on my resume. And so my relationship with my mom was never the same after that. Had I reconciled, maybe there would have just been a little blip, um, sort of a an issue, you know, sort of a bump in the road. But it was noticeably different after that. Um, I realized later that I wasn't as useful to her because that that piece of information created vulnerability in her to hit what I call her shame spot. And so she used me as her armor to protect. And so with a lack of boundaries, which is a huge component of codependency with a lack of boundaries, I was an extension of her. So what I find very common in parenting, which is something that I'm, I have worked hard to unlearn and relearn a boundary between parents and children. And that is 
their behavior is not a reflection of my parenting. Their behavior is a reflection of them showing up in the world in the way that makes the most sense for them in the moment. Mm. Um, it isn't a reflection on whether I have or haven't taught them manners or have or haven't modeled, you know, good character or honesty or, or any of those things. And for my mom, I was the perfect resume until I filed for divorce. And to the point that when my kids who were younger at the time, six, seven-ish time frame, but for a few summers, they went to stay with my parents for four to five weeks at a time because I wanted them to know my parents. Um, the conclusion drawn was I didn't really like my parents, but I wanted them to know them so that whatever happened in the future, if I ever sort of brought them up in conversation or, or talked about memories with them in it, they knew them. They, they weren't some fictitious character sort of in the family tree. Um, but when my kids would go visit them in the summers, my mom would take them out and about to see her friends. And she would say, oh, these are, these are Carrie's kids. These are, this is Cash and Tatum. She's divorced. Oh, that was <laughs> like, a, have to like, this has she'd to, to be get it out there. Yeah. She'd have to get it out there preemptively so that she could, however, explain it away, protect herself, whatever from that. God forbid failing. they find out yeah. that you are, <laughs> and they tell her. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Or ask, you yeah. know, Hey, where, where are their parents? Where's Carrie and her spouse? And then all of a sudden it's like, mm, house mouse. um, and so <laughs> as if that's like the worst thing in the world. I know um, it's so silly. Like, like, it's like, Oh no. <laughs> yeah. um, those were some good years in my life actually. Um, and so, but, but that became the dynamic. And so it became this, this thing that got in the way of our relationship and really my value proposition to her tanked. Mm. And so she moved on to find someone else, something else to protect her that didn't open her up to potential shame and embarrassment by other people and their judgments of her as a parent. And so I could have married a mass murderer. I could have married like the worst person on the planet. And that person would have been exempted because that person was not a reflection of her parenting. But if I rounded wrong or didn't tip enough or any of the slightest littlest things um, that weren't perfect in the way in which she saw perfection, then I was just ridiculed. And, you know, it just became this thing. And, and so my sisters defied against that, pushed against it and said, lady, I'm not buying what you're selling. Um, and so that defiant behavior really fractured and almost say, you know, broke their relationships young. They were very young, middle school, when those even younger, those relationships were kind of broken. And what they saw looking back to the younger sister and looking forward to the older sister was something they couldn't have or didn't have. And they thought that our relationship was so great because my mom volunteered for everything and suggested all these things. And I had freedom and autonomy and in ways, um, I mean, probably because she knew exactly how I'd behave in those moments. Um, otherwise, she probably wouldn't have given me that autonomy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what they saw. And so even now, as 30, 40, and 50-year-old women, when we talk about our childhoods and our relationships to each other, um, they talk about their visceral hatred of me, absolute hatred of me for different reasons, but absolute hatred. And that's been interesting to sort of work through and I understand it. I don't know that had I 
asked about it or learned about it from zero to, I don't know, 40 <laughs> that I would have understood that perspective and found value in that sort of lived experience and and their narrative. Mm. But as I've done more work, I'm thankful that I, in that sort of mid thirties timeframe, shed my mother, I gave up my mom to gain my sisters. Mm. And that was a conscious decision because they're younger, they're going to be around longer and they're sort of my peer generation. And that those were the relationships that I cared more about as I got older than the relationships that I have with my parents. Mm. And so um, when I've run into something in therapy or read something, I will call my sisters and say, hey, this is how I remember that story. How do you remember that story? Because you were home or you were around or, and so there's a very specific situation that occurred um, that I won't go into the details of, but um, very traumatic for me as a 12 year old. And I blamed myself. I kept asking myself, what could I have done differently? I should have anticipated that response. I should have just cleaned my room, you know, all these things. And when I asked my sisters, my older sister said, oh yeah, I remember that. I was home. I had a friend who spent the night and all I could remember thinking was for once, it's not me. For once I'm not sort of in the crosshairs. And so, you know, it's deserved because it's never been her before. And so it's finally her and it's about time. My little sister, she said, I was too young. She was four. Um, she said, I was too young. But mom just told that story like a month ago. And so this is an ongoing thing that my little sister, her perspective of that situation is a very normal retelling of this situation that very much the narrative is that I screwed up and I was at fault and I messed up. And so I got what I got and deserved it. Um, and in my work now and sort of reflecting on that whole situation and what I needed in that moment. Um, I didn't do anything that a 12 year old should have done or shouldn't done. Like I really sort of um, flipped the script and took on all the responsibility when I shouldn't have taken any of it because what I had done was very normal 12 year old behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so incredibly common for those of us that are good girls and like good, the good one of the family is like to, it's easy enough for us to take the blame anyways, because somebody's got to. So, you know what, I'll be the martyr that helps too. Um, I think it's amazing that you have this um, ability now to kind of get different perspectives on the same situation, which can help. Uh, now, like working through that, reparenting yourself through that to recognize that because without those external um, experiences or people's different vantage points of the same experience, I think that's where a lot of the work happens is trying to imagine what it could look like outside of your own experience. But the fact that you have these treasure troves of humans that have experienced for the most part, a similar enactment but have a totally different vantage point for it um can definitely help a lot in the therapeutic process for sure absolutely and, and i'm as i'm assuming like you do offer that the same for them because anytime you learn something they learn something from that same thing right whether or not i always say whether or not they want to uh <laughs> like when we bring stuff up it's like we're just gonna like leave that question there for you and you have fun with that bye uh, <laughs> and and work on it that way but I think 
like doing that work together is part of probably correct me if I'm wrong has helped you guys become closer together like being able to kind of puzzle piece your realities almost back together absolutely and I think as I continue to reframe my life in a more healthy way and sort of work through the dynamics that were really not not okay um and how they impacted me I'm able to just in sharing my work Mm -hmm. they get the opportunity to have an invitation to wrestle with that piece of information and how do they go back to that era of their life and sort of okay well if she's reframing it this oh how does that reframe it for me and they can choose to do it And, and that's really where I feel like my older sister was able to open up in the last year and and in in I mean it was probably a two hour conversation um but in that conversation she like, I've never said these words out loud. I've never said this to anyone. I've never shared this ever. And, and honestly, that in that moment, I was flattered. I was really honored that to, to be this person in her past that she just absolutely hated. And then to be the person, the first person that she sort of says this stuff out loud. And then for me to have the opportunity to normalize it, to say, Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I I've done the work. I know where this the root of that is. Um, we can talk about that if you want. Um, and so it's given us the opportunity to sort of tie some things back, and um, she you know has a better understanding uh, of things and how, and how they're happening. And and I'm even I'm even doing a better job now of living out boundaries. Like my sister, my little sister sent me. Um, an audio file that she, she had had an argument sort of conflict with her six-year-old son, my nephew. And she thought, I'm just going to hit record and just play it back later when I'm not in that frame of mind. And so I was asking, she was sharing it with me and I was asking her about it. And she sent me the audio file and I took notes like pages of notes. And I called her and I said, um, do you, do you want, me to share with you my thoughts or would you rather we just move on with life and and she said no I would love to hear what you have to what you have to say and what you have to offer and so that wouldn't have been the way in which I would have approached it years ago I would have just started talking like because I'm a problem solver and I'm going to help you and your problems are my problems and we're going to just jump right into this as opposed to you shared this with me and maybe the right boundary is I just want you to be in the know as opposed to because I shared it with you, just stand in my shoes <laughs> and tell me all the things I should do better as a parent. Um, and so even I'm noticing in myself this shift away from jumping right in, which is just blurring someone else's boundaries or even my own unknowingly or just out of default. Um, I think a lot of people don't know what those boundaries are they just know when they've been crossed but they don't know that that's something that they should have asked for right like most people don't ask so um yeah I agree with you a lot of communication has definitely improved in my life with that same thing because I'm also a problem solver I'm like let me tell you how to fix this because I can see it from the outside in and this is what I like to do and I love to coach and let me tell you everything you need to know and then they're like oh I just really had to vent and I'm like oh and then they don't do the thing that you would like suggested anyways and then you get frustrated you're like I told you this like I told you how to fix it 
but you're here again. So I think like having that gap between like the, yeah, instead of jumping in to fix, be the fixer or, um, or to give advice or whatever the thing is to have that space to say like, how do you want me to approach this? What do you need from me right now? Um, And give them the opportunity to say like, wait, what? Like I can actually, I can ask for my needs to be met. Yeah. I would assume which like from the type of household you're describing, maybe that was very difficult for, um, for like your younger sister for sure um, to ask for needs to be met potentially, right? There was no asking for needs. We had a sign in the house that hung on the wall that said, if mommy ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And that wasn't a joke. Um, That was very much the dynamic in the house. And so um, it's just how we chose to respond. Like the narrative in my mind is the narrative in their minds. It's the same conclusion that we drew about ourselves in the context of our mom. But how that manifested itself in coping behaviors is different. My older sister is very much the externalizer. So struggles with addiction and sort of outward facing type of coping behaviors. Um, And I'm the internalizer. So I'm the textbook codependent. (laughs) Type A, people pleasing, hypervigilant, codependent, like all the things. Um, And then my little sister is a hybrid. She's a bit of both um, in a way that she um, defied young and sort of said, I'm not buying what you're selling. This is not working for me. I see this model relationship over here um, and I want that. And because I can't have that, I'm going to throw tantrums and get upset and express what I call the negative range of human emotion. We don't really like very much. Um, She expressed that a lot. I didn't express that ever. Um, and I just learned from watching my older sister express it, that it never, it was never good. Never works out. Never, never, never good. And so I just, I I would say to myself, I'm not going to sneak out of the house. I'm not going to hide alcohol. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to crash my car. I'm not going to drop out of high school. I'm not going to do all these very sort of like the behavior was what I saw. I didn't understand any of this sort of like feelings and needs and things like that behind the behavior. I just saw the behavior as a kid. And just said, I'm going to do the opposite of Molly. I would say to people, like, she gave me a textbook of what not to do. And so I just did the opposite of everything that she did. And I asked myself and my dad later, like mid-20s, I don't know. I said, I don't know what y'all did in, in parenting, but like, I never questioned whether I was going to go to college or not. Mm-hmm. because I was a new mom and sort of thinking through just the long term like how do I model for my kids one that college is an option but two it's not your only option I wanted them to live their authentic lives not knowing that that was in such contrast to what I had done yet um but I wanted them to choose their path like that I was living my best life they should be live they should live their best life and that was sort of how I saw it but I said to him, I don't know what y'all did, but I never questioned going to college. And I look back and go, come on. Now I understand what happened. It wasn't anything that they did to me. It wasn't some like good coaching session or like some like, you know, fist bump type 
you know, interaction with them that like led me to believe that I was like capable and was empowered to go to college. And that was, you know, the right fit for me. Um, it was just, I sure as heck wasn't going to drop out of high school, which is what my sister did and ran away. I wasn't going to do that either. Um, and so I just was going to sort of follow the path that society and schools and all that had subscribed for us because that was the, at the time, the, the only definition for success. And so I was going to do that because I knew that that would be met with something different than what my sister's choices were met with. It's so like our stories are literally the same. Like that is exactly, <laughs> and it isn't until like the last few years of like working on myself and like finally hiring my own coach to, to be like, I, I, I told her, I was like, I've never not known who I was supposed to be. And so now I'm at this place, like turning 40 this year where I'm like, I don't know that I want to be what I've been because I don't think I chose any of it, uh, like actually, uh, including I, uh, my mom said when I was in grade six, I like came down crying because I didn't think they would be able to afford to send me to university. But I was like, but that's what good kids do. Like, this is what we do for success. And like high, same high achieving my whole life. Cause that's what you're supposed to do. Check it off. Um, and because my brother and sister both did not go to secondary post-secondary school, um, my brother who's incredibly brilliant, but the school system's not set up for brilliant people. So similar kind of path that your sister took where like very emotionally outbursty, but then turns to, you know, um, drugs and alcohol as like coping mechanisms, especially in a small town, like it's so similar. But, but it was the same kind of thing where watching, watching how he was treated when he would do certain things, it's all behavior modeling, right? And to say like, okay, don't do that. So not like note that. Um, But I read this thing recently, which is kind of interesting. And for you, it would definitely play out because of the age gap difference between you guys is that the the mother that you your older sister had is not the same mother that you had is not the same mother that your younger sister has because your mother would have been in different stages of her life like when she had her first daughter right that was a totally different experience so by the time you come along and that's like a huge gap would you say six years um Yeah. So seven years, people's whole bodies change in seven years. Like that's like, you have a whole new body in seven years. So she would have been a totally different person, even though some of the, her behaviors, of course, or patterns would still remain, but now there's a second. So it would be a different person. And then seven or six years later, she has the third and now she's a different in a different place as well. Um, and like, I never really had thought about that before. I can't remember where I read that in the last few years, but um, I just thought that was a really interesting way to put it for parents to say like who you are with your first is not who you are with your second kid. And so not only are they different people, but so are you um, when it comes to that. So tell me about how all of that now trickled into you being a parent and the impact um, that that had on, had, or has, because you still have children, obviously, uh, has on your children and how you started to see that show up with them. So the biggest way that things showed up with them was it started at early on in the pandemic. Um, and like I said, I, I just 
felt like I was just bumbling along in life. Like life was happening to me more than I was in control of life until I was in my late thirties. And that was when I started to sort of build my own support system because I wasn't, I realized I wasn't ever going to get from my mom what I needed from a mom. Um, and so I just started building a, a support system that would stand in that place. And so that fracture occurred. I was able to sort of create some distance and I was able to better support myself with people that I chose as opposed to just the, the biology of things. Um, but at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we sheltered in place for a few days. We were supposed to go on a little staycation from Austin at the time to Houston to visit my now husband, um, who was not even my dating partner at the time. He was a very, very good friend and colleague and had been for a long time. And we were going to go swim in his pool and I was going to work out of our Houston office. And he said, pack some extra clothes if you'd like to shelter here, as opposed to go back to your house in Austin. And I thought he has a pool and I'd have an adult to talk to. This sounds great. Um, much better than if I sheltered in place in Georgetown. And so um, we did that. And what I didn't know was coming. So we showed up on Saturday, right before the world shut down. And then by Tuesday night, he said, this is everything that I want. Please don't ever leave. And I'm ready to get my head out of my ass. Um, I'm ready um, to do this. Let's really sort of give this a go. I'm all in. And I said, I'm all in, let's do it. Um, And what I didn't know is for a completely like unbeknownst to me, codependent, um, when you fall madly in love with someone and they voluntarily choose you, that's like the cocktail, the perfect cocktail for 40 years of unmet needs and unfelt feelings to come flying out of your body. Mm. And it didn't happen right away. We got married exactly a year later in March of 21, but tail end of 20, early 21, I started noticing behaviors in him, behaviors in me, things that were not jiving. There was all sorts of conflict that was never there in the years leading up to that. We'd known each other for 15 years going into this. And so there was none of that conflict kind of coming into this. And so it was eye-opening. And then in October of 20, um, my daughter Tatum attempted suicide and that rocked me, but it rocked us. Um, it happened all in the throes of a big argument. So it wasn't like we were not home or anything. We were in the throes of an argument. She went into her room and attempted to, to kill herself. And that, it was just like, uh, this is broken. <laughs> like something's broken. This is not working. This is not okay. Um, now what? And we got her into therapy. We um, helped her find a psychiatrist and that was great. And it was working and helping and doing some things. Um, And then late 2021, I started doing a lot of reading and I'd set this, I call you know, big, ridiculous goal. I'm now as a recovering codependent learning how to set and achieve or fail mundane goals but I was very good at setting ridiculous goals that, you know, frankly were low risk. So if I achieved it, everyone was like, you're amazing. And if I failed it, folks were like, so big anyway, it's no big deal. Um, so to me, that's low risk. Um, like being able to drink, you know, 64 ounces of water for seven days in a row and failing that, it's like, how can you not do that? Um, that's scary. Um, but I was reading and just started consuming and it shined a gigantic spotlight on 
his behaviors and my behaviors and this sort of dynamic between the two. And I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, I can't change you. I want to, would like to try, um, but can't. And so I need to work on me. And so I dove right in big therapy, lots of reading, lots of training, all sorts of things. Couldn't get enough. Like I could not get enough. Yeah. Once you, once you, pull, I was just telling some of that today. Once you pull that thread, it's like the whole sweater is coming out. <laughs> facts um and so in february of 22 she and i got into an argument about chicken it's always really important things that we choose to really like lock horns with our kids on um and so she um picked up a chair a dining room chair threw it on the ground it broke so i was dealing with shards of wood and pieces so that if any of the boys in the house would have rolled in at that time there wasn't a bunch of stuff everywhere and so um, by the time I turned to go up the stairs to check on her, she had come downstairs and, and said, mom, I need you. And I said, what? And she said, I cut myself. And in that moment, my thought was, do I have three seconds? Do I have three minutes? Do I have three hours to save you? What do I have? And so my first question was where, and she said my leg. And I knew at that point that I had time. And so we got a towel and because of the previous incident, she had um, a file at our local children's hospital. And so I drove her there and I told her I could easily take you to urgent care and just tell somebody you cut yourself accidentally. Um, but we're going to be truthful about this because we just need to own it. It is what it is. And so um, we got her stitches. And what happened was heading to the little local urgent care place to have her stitches removed on day 10, which was seven to 10 days. So on day 10, last day. I said, I can guarantee you, you're going to get your stitches out, but I can't guarantee you that you're going to get cleared for athletics. Mm. And she said, well, I really hope I get cleared for athletics. And I said, I do too. And we get there and sure enough, she gets stitches out and she's not cleared for athletics. It's not healed enough. And we're driving home and I'm trying to, what I thought was be supportive. So, um, well, let's reframe it this way and let's reframe it this way and let's reframe it this way and let's look at it this way and let's do this. And I, and she got more and more agitated with me to the point that I, in my very codependent way, said, fine, I'm just going to be quiet. And so then it really became about me, um, which was not okay in that moment, never okay in an adult child dynamic. Um, and so we got home and that frustration, I was like, you talk to her kind of a thing. Um, and a couple of days later, we went to her therapist who we absolutely adore. And I said, I'm learning all this stuff about me and this is how the situation happened. And so in this safe place, Tatum, what could I have done? What should I have done? What could I have said? What should I have said to have made the situation better? And she said, nothing, do nothing, say nothing. I don't need you in those moments, I thought, okay, that was like a really big, like kick to the gut yeah, as a like, parent. Yeah. And her therapist said, mom, you're trying to protect her from your childhood. You're trying, you're trying to protect her from your childhood and your childhood is over and you're not your mother. Mm. So you don't need to do that. So let it go, let go of this and this piece of codependency. That's a big deal for me is I don't want to control the behavior. I want to control the outcome because with the outcome 
comes potential shame, criticism, wrath, anger, you know, all the things that I watched my sisters get over and over and over again. And I got a couple times um, when I apparently made some choices that warranted that kind of treatment. And um, it, it was eye-opening. That that framing of it was eye-opening for me because I've always prided myself on being, um, I want my kids to be independent. I want them to be autonomous. They get votes in our house. Like they have voices. I've had, I mean, when my daughter was six, I said, God, are you done with this tantrum? She said, you always told me that I get to feel all my emotions. And I said, you're right. Okay. I'm off. Feel them all. Um, and so there's always been that kind of dynamic in our house where they were whole people. Um, but this was this kind of coping behavior that it, I needed to control something because it made my anxiety feel better or, you know, not quite so, um, overwhelming. And so, but, but that notion of like, I'm controlling the outcome because I'm really trying to protect them from this thing called shame and blame and embarrassment and all that. It's not that I'm trying to save them from any possible negative outcome. I'm really just trying to protect them from the ridicule and the tar and feathering and that kind of thing um, that humiliation exactly um, that was doled out in my house. Mm. And at that point I was like, I'm done. That was enough for me to be like, okay. Um, and and what I realized in those moments talking to her therapist, I was the problem. I was the reason she wanted to die. I was the reason. And so she was converting this emotional pain that I was dishing out to her into physical pain because she could control the physical pain. She couldn't control the emotional pain that I was dishing to her. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, God, that's hard. But I can I can fix me. I can work on me. That's within the boundary. Um, yeah. I'm in control of that. And so I went to work. And driving home from therapy that night, because both of my kids were there, driving home from therapy that night, I said to my kids, days like tonight are really hard, but I want you to know something. I love hearing the things come out of your mouth that come out of your mouth because one, the thought never crossed my mind, let alone crossed my lips to buck the system, think there was some other way and vocalize that I wanted it that way and not so, not the way it was given to me. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that I learned those skills at 40, 42, um, you're learning them at 10 and 12, or you have them already at 10 and 12. This is validation that I'm somehow magically teaching you things I don't even have. Like somehow in this pendulum swing of, I'm not going to do it that way because I'm never going to be the reason someone feels that way about themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, In that pendulum swing, I did a lot of parenting things right um, or more healthy um, for my kids that I was like, okay, hard, but so good. So good. Like there's hope for y'all um that you guys are really going to be your own people and you're going to grow into that at a much younger age than I did and ideally you know in this imperfect perfect world they're able to do that before they jump into like really important adult relationships or building a family if they choose to like all those things um are those dynamics that we build these coping behaviors as children and then when we carry them into relationships where, we're, where we are no longer the child, yeah. um, they don't really work that well. 
Um, and that's what I was learning. And so really shifted my approach to parenting um, and forced me to shine a light on some behaviors in my marriage. I am a hypervigilant. I am a hypervigilant because I have this just deeply rooted fear of abandonment. Mm -hmm. And again, when you find this person that you fall madly deeply in love with and they're like, heck yeah, I want to be married to you. You're like, oh my God, I'm sure it's fleeting, right? Like I'm sure there are conditions. What are they? They'll come out at some point. And so I have this in the back of my mind that there's at some point the shoe's going to drop or at some point, you know, what I prophesize is going to happen will happen right I'll lose he'll abandon me or put conditions on the love the same way that I grew up in a household where all those conditions were placed um and so when we have conflict and there's been a lot of conflict for the last few years um we are definitely speaking of phases in our own adult lives as parents and, and spouses even partners yeah. um we are not the same people we were even six months ago not even close like if you, my daughter's best friend um, still lives in Austin. She came over in the summer and she said, your house is so fun. And I was like, it wasn't nine months ago. <laughs> it was high conflict nine months. Um, I was triggered all the time yelling. Is this, I'm not a yeller. I'm mm. yelling. Like when I'm triggered now, yeah. it just, it's all those feelings I was never allowed to express or feel, um, or I certainly didn't feel safe to express them ever, even in this yeah. like, these doses, um, they come flying out now. And so I've had to work on setting healthier boundaries with my spouse. Um, and that's been something that even the setting of a boundary with him has made him uncomfortable. He's like, no, I want all this transparency. I'm like, right, but I can't honor your boundaries with that level of transparency because it doesn't bring out the best in me. Mm. I want to go like, look, I want to go like, you know, dig, dig. around. Yeah, I want to yeah. dig in there. Yeah. And, and that's not okay. Um, yeah. You might think that's transparency, but I'm self-aware enough to know that it's beyond that. And mm. so let's sense the boundaries. And after I've done enough healing work, then we can start exploring of uh, different levels, the more transparent layers in our relationship, because I will have done the work internally that I won't need to go look for the proof that there's conditions or that what I believe should happen to me will happen to me or whatever. Um, and, and now that we've worked through a lot of this, um, when we do have conflict, I have said to him, every day you stay, you're teaching me unconditional love. Mm. I've never experienced it in this context before. I never got it as a kid. I've never had it in a dating relationship or any of that kind of thing. And so this is what you're teaching me every day um, that you stay every day that we have a conflict or I express a need or I show up as my whole self, not just my happy, easy self, but my whole yeah. self, messy, screwed up self. Um, every day that I show up in this way, or fly off the handle in that way, or, you know, repair or whatever, every day you stay, you're teaching me that it is possible that I do have it. Um, I'm deserving of it. You know, everyone is deserving of it. Um, but I certainly, you know, I can say like, oh, everyone dole it out every, just everyone. And like, but me doesn't apply to me. Like the, yeah. the rules, I'm the exception in so many ways. Um, and so I'm learning to embrace the fact that I am not an exception 
um, just right. Isn't that 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 <laughs> kick in the ass? That one thing where it's like, oh, I'm not that special. That's like, well, you're coming to Body Image Bootcamp, and I say that quite often. There, it's like you're you're yeah, you're special, but you're not that special. Like you're a human. You have yes. human things that happen in your mind and in your life. Like we're not as special as we think we are. But I think there's some something to be said for getting ourselves into a place of safety where you can be high conflict um like to have somebody push back uh against against like bump up against the things that we have been told are true for most of our life um and then yeah to to have a space safe enough that you can be mad and sad and hurt and disappointed and frustrated and all those quote unquote bad emotions all emotions are just information i say that on like every podcast i think but um (laughs) but it's true it's just information everyone uh i'm saying that more for myself than anybody else but uh but i think there's something to be said about getting into those spaces uh of that because if you were not in a safe relationship or a, a space where you could you know like push back or set boundaries or things like that then we would just keep repeating the same behaviors we always repeated and being a shell of ourselves um so i want to know kind of like for anybody that's listening that maybe they don't know what codependency is like they've heard the word it's like kind of like a very pop more of a popular term in like pop psychology in the last few years but for you what are some things that would define for you specifically obviously your personal experience defined codependency when you were like oh yeah check 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 uh (laughs) what were a few of those things so people are like oh that might sound like me um then they can start to go down the road of looking into what is codependency yeah um so when these kinds of conversations come up I always tell people I hope that whatever I say or share gives you better, better Google search terms. Yeah. And so it just gives you a word to latch onto that you can start to sort of run down rabbit holes. Um, so for me, it, I mean, I'd, I'd gone to a couple therapy sessions um, when I changed jobs, actually, I went from one firm to another firm and, and that divorce was emotionally more difficult in my professional identity than the emotions wrapped up in my first personal divorce. Um, and I went to therapy about it, kind of working through some of these things. And, uh, she said to me, you're a codependent. Um, and so here's some books and (laughs) books on boundaries. Like I thought codependency was boundaries, just lack of boundaries. And I don't even know that I knew what that meant really, um, until a few years ago when I really kind of jumped into it. And I was reading a book at the tail end of 2021 in the context of something else, Um, So it's not a book on codependency. It was a book on something else, but it talked about the relationship between people. And when one of those people is a codependent, sort of this is the sort of craziness that sort of gets created between those two people in relationships. And I read the elements of codependency and I thought, wow, (laughs) I like wrote in the margins, the initials, me, my spouse and our two kids. And I, my initials were on all of them. And like, I saw a couple little sprinklings of each kid and and my husband um, in there, but I was on all of them. And so the first one is hypervigilance. Um, it's very much, um, um, there's vigilance. There's like being aware 
and um, conscientious of things happening around you. And then there's hyper vigilance. And so that's this kind of constant scanning, um, scanning for facial expressions, body language, voice changes, all these things. Um, and how that has played out in my life is um, <laughs> I'm an incessant people watcher and not, and, and in, but also not in the like fun, jovial, like I enjoy just watching the dynamics and behaviors of other people. Cause if people fascinate me, people do fascinate me. Um, but in this very, like, I need to know what's up kind of way all the time. And when I read, uh, you know, researchers or, or writers or people say, you know, in my research and what I've learned is my research is 25 to 30 years of hypervigilant observation. Mm. Um, and so I've learned a lot from just constantly scanning, watching, absorbing, consuming other people's, how they show up in the world, their dynamics, their moods, all the things. Um, so if you find yourself doing that, if you need to sort of know the moment someone comes into your house, are you okay? Or the moment you hear a tone change or a sigh or their voice cracks and you're like, what was it me? Did I do that? Was it my fault? Uh, that, mad at me? I think that, like, that, that, Oh, what did I do? Yeah. Is it me? Are you mad at me? Are you upset at me? What did I do? Um, help me understand what I did wrong so I can fix it because I'm the problem. And so what did I do? And so it's this like inward thing, but it's all about that person's mood or that person's dynamic and the relationship between the two of you. Um, so that's definitely a big piece of codependency. Uh, people pleasing is a component of codependency. And <laughs> that looks like I don't know how you taught me to go to college, but uh, I decided to go to college. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that that's a thing. Um, and so, but if you find yourself in relationships, and I don't even know if that's the right way to say this, but if you find yourself vying to build a relationship with someone and it's one-sided mm -hmm. or every time they make a suggestion, you're like, sure, and you're not willing to make a suggestion or anytime you do and they say, no, I want to do that. And you're like, okay, whatever you want to do. Very um, easy going. Amenable. Yeah. Very amenable to what other people want. And what that means is I'm willing to sacrifice myself. I'm willing to ignore and suppress and dismiss my needs and my desires and my feelings, because I believe if I do, then they won't be pleased with me. And therefore the relationship will break down. Uh, and so you just vie to keep this relationship and you're willing to sacrifice yourself to keep it. It's um, kind of like in uh, what is it? Runaway bride where he's like, well, how do you like your eggs? And she's like, I don't know. How do you like your eggs? Like, what are you having kind of thing? It's yeah. that right. Uh, not, yeah, not knowing what your needs are or not being, having a hard time asking if you know what it is to say, like, to even ask that in relationship, not, not just romantic relationships. I think it's important for people to know friendships, um, parent, child, Employment. like, yeah. Employment even. I'm yeah, afraid to keep the my peace. job or be yeah, labeled. Yeah, like keeping you the know. peace kind of thing uh, is at the 
part of all of that, I think, is just like, don't rock the boat. It's just, yeah, whatever. I notice you have the scales behind you, which I'm like, I'm a Libra, so I noticed. But um, but I was like, which is kind of funny about that, right? Because it's like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to tip the scales in one way uh, to my favor specifically. Like you can have everything, but not not me though. That would be too much. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And um, the other one is that control. <laughs> mm. um, and it's, and it's really, um, sometimes it can be controlling other behavior. Sometimes it can be a lot, oftentimes it's controlling the outcome. Um, but if you look at all of those things, they do kind of zip up into this idea of a lack of, or a blurring of boundaries. Mm -hmm. So if I think that my children's behavior is an extension of my parenting or a definition or reflection of my parenting, that's really a blurring of the boundaries that somehow my children are a piece of me and not their own whole independent selves with their own preferences and desires and how they want to show up in the world. Um, and so that's a boundary that I have to respect, that I don't need to control the outcome because they are their own people and they're path, their learning, their growth, their experiences are theirs. They're not mine to curate. Mm. And so I need to be okay with some of those experiences being, and we always say the cliche, like the most growth happens in failure, right? Except we protect ourselves and everyone else from failure. Um, <laughs> and so we have to get okay with yeah. that. Um, if we're going to sort of champion the cliche phrase, then we really actually have to like walk it um, mm. and allow other people be, to be in the squidge they're allowed to sit yes. in those spaces and our job is to say do I need to leave you alone mm. do you want me to sit with you in that space or are you looking for someone a lifeline someone to sort of help you right but that's for them to decide not for us to decide yeah um, I can imagine like I don't have kids but I well I think up until the last <laughs> probably five to ten years like parenting has very much been uh your children are you miniature use like that's what you hear people say it's a mini you running around um but they're not at all and if that's one thing like uh, in doing clifton strengths obviously i've come to realize that and we talked about that in your coaching that that's a big part of breakdown in communication though and people feeling safe to ask for things because we've our generation has been taught to just like oh i need to be more like my parents i guess because that's what they think that compliance. yeah yeah, whatever, yeah. Our, whatever the adult says yeah we comply. Have to comply and we call that respect yes and respect so through authority versus respect your elders you know yeah. if you don't listen to your parents then you're a bad kid or you're defiant or and that's a reflection on you as a bad mm. parent and so if you have if you look at you know my me and my sisters three girls right one of us went straight into college. One took a slower path and graduated with a bachelor's degree. I went on to law school. And then my older sister didn't go to college, but she's in the medical field and she is so good at what she does. Um, she's just amazing. But on paper, my parents are not big success stories because my sisters struggle and they didn't do the textbook success thing. We're not all gazillionaires, mm. you know, like all this sort of textbooky things, um, you know, and I was in my twenties when I bought my first house, my sister was 
um, in her thirties when she bought her first house. And my older sister was 49 when she bought her first house. So this whole notion of like, go to college, buy a house, two, two and a half kids, a dog, and a fence, you know, all yeah. that stuff, right? And you do it in this order. Um, we're completely out of order. Um, I think if you look at most people in the last like 20 years is out of order. Like no, but that order doesn't exist anymore, especially not in the last five years uh, yes. and moving forward. Like it's, there is no blueprint anymore because it's everything changes so quickly and good luck buying a house. <laughs> in general. And, and, I, and I love that. I love that. And that's really, um, I just had this conversation last week are the way we talk about younger generations, the way we talk about teenagers, we would talk about, they're so entitled and they're so this and so that. And so, and what I keep saying is they're just more and more not buying what we're selling because what we're selling is crap. Mm-hmm. We're selling this, like get in a box and live in that box for a long time. And, and then, then be depressed yeah. until you're 60, if you're lucky to make it there. Yes. And then you can retire mm-hmm. and, and then be bored. <laughs> yeah. And and so I, I worked on a thing a couple of years ago. And what I said was, we need to start championing the 10 year olds who discover who they are and move away from championing the 40 year olds who find themselves in midlife Mm. because they find themselves because we put them in a box for 30 years. And if we just stop putting people in boxes, then they wouldn't have to come out in midlife and have this whole like reconciliation like identity upheaval that we are currently going through (laughs) yeah of like wait 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 this isn't me this isn't what I chose for myself what is happening and then I get to drive my own car and not have to be in the passenger seat (laughs) yeah it's like now I gotta like I dug this hole now I gotta climb out of it for the next 50 years (laughs) yes yes but yeah. yeah And, and Brene Brown doesn't call it a, a midlife crisis. She calls it a brutal unraveling. Yeah. And, and that's really what it is. It's this discovery of so many pieces and parts of ourselves that we sacrificed mm. to fit in or to um, avoid conflict or to whatever, right? Do the things that we felt we needed to do to survive, thrive, live, be, exist, all the things. And we start cobbling ourselves back together and that takes a lot of work and a lot of repair and a lot of healing when if we could just as kids come into their own at 8 9 10 11 when they say you know this is how I want to show up in the world or these are my preferences or like my children I recognize mom that you're a Christian I have big fat doubts big doubts I want to take years off and then maybe I'll come back around and that's their choice yeah critical Um, thinking so yes show up in the world how you want to show up Mm -hmm. and as adults we need to flip our script we work for them Mm -hmm. they don't work for us and that's completely foreign to previous generations where we very much expected and championed this compliant behavior when research now shows that's incredibly damaging to the developing brain and nervous system. And so we need to get it together as adults 
reparent ourselves, do the healing, figure all the things out. But our job is to really, um, I've told my kids, I'm the bumpers in the gutter. I'm not here to guarantee. I'm not the little thing that like you go and aim it to like get, make sure that you go straight down the lane and get a strike. That's yeah. not my job. My job is to be the guardrails. Mm -hmm. And however many times you bump into me, it doesn't mean that I ever narrow the lane. The mm -hmm. lane is the lane. And I'm just here to shepherd that you don't sort of get off into the ditch somewhere and you're sort of <laughs> don't realize because you're young and naive that you're, you know, trekking off into some areas that are really, really risky. Um, and that's really my job is to be your shepherd um, and, and to be there that way. Um, as parents, we take on way more in our job description. Um, and, you know, and that extends, right? I, the language that I've started using has been adults who have children in their care. Um, mm. I can't, I'm an aunt to teens and 20 year olds. I'm an aunt to a four and six year old. Um, I work in the education space. I'm around educators and administrators all the time. They have thousands of children in their care. And, and this is something that we need to, we need to get real about as just an adult community at large yeah. um, that we need to do the work. But I think that that's so true. Like even we see that play out in the school system. Like I was talking about my brother, like school systems usually aren't set up for really smart kids is because sm really smart kids are usually def defiant, quote unquote, um, because they ask questions. And in the past, asking questions is not how you are Round defiant. Them. Yeah, you're a troublemaker. If you Like I was even called a troublemaker for asking questions, too many questions, right? And- and so, yeah, I think it's really important for us to realize like, yeah, it's not that the kids don't have to change. It's the adults that have to change. And this again, like talking about body image or things like that, lots of people are like, you need to talk to my kids. And I'm like, no, I need to talk to you because you're the one that talks to your kids. And it doesn't matter what you tell them. If you're turning around and behaving this way, that's what they're going to do. They're not going to do this thing. So that's like so this has been such a good conversation shit i love talking about this stuff um but i just think it's so it's the more we are in the squidge together we also start to realize like oh this is just what it means to be a human um and it's complex as hell and yes. there is no direct path to being a human and that's part of the beauty of it to be honest uh and the adventure in it i think um so uh, is there any last minute kind of things that any last things you want to say about um, codependency or just relationships maybe? Uh, and then where can people, if you want people to reach out to you or find you, where can they do that? Uh, all that good stuff. <laughs> um, I haven't set up all the things to find me yet. I have an Instagram account. I have like eight followers. I think three of those accounts are my daughter. Um, <laughs> So I'm not, I'm not a good find me that way. I'm on LinkedIn. So you can certainly look me up there and um, Carrie Brady, but um, I would just encourage people to get curious, just get curious. Um, we have been indoctrinated into this world of judgment mm -hmm. um, that it's critical and it's judgmental and it's conclusive and it's very rigid. And I would just encourage everyone to get really curious and explore why that thing keeps happening. Ask yourself what's at the root of 
this behavior that I have, or I've noticed a pattern in that relationship or, you know, all those things get curious. Um, and then I would just say you have permission to show up in the world how you want and need to. Um, for me, I am no contact with my parents um, and that's the right choice for me. I would love to see that normalized a little more. So people who do believe after wrestling with it for a while, believe that that's the right choice for them. We should not be responding in ways that are conclusive, like, but they're your parents or, um, but no contact. That's a, that's a big move. Um, yeah. yeah, it doesn't come without a lot of questioning and wrestling and pain to reach a conclusion like that. It is a big fucking deal. Um, yeah. It's not like I just decided I don't want to. Yeah, no, there's some a little bit of thought went into it, I'm sure. Yes, yes. And so to just get curious with other people's decisions, don't be judgmental of your decisions and conclusive of your decisions, but get curious of other people's decisions too and lead with questions. Um, why did you, or what did you think about, or how about that? that? Or I'd love to know more. Are you willing to share, you know, just get curious, um, about yourself and your relationships and others. And I think if we, um, can show up in ways that recognize that our lived experiences bring value, but also recognize that there's billions of lived experiences that aren't ours that bring a lot of value too. then we can show up in that tension of confidence and humility. Beautiful. Oh, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Carrie. This was a great conversation. And I'm certain we have given people a lot of new Google search words. So <laughs> they can do their own so they can start going unraveling their sweaters, so to speak. Yes. Awesome. Thank you for being here. No, I appreciate it. Thank you.